Welcome everyone to Business Growth on Purpose. My name is Jose Palomino. I'm CEO of Value Prop Interactive. And it is my great pleasure every week to be interviewing experts from around the world, owners of other B2B businesses, and sometimes just sharing some of my personal insights from decades of helping businesses grow on purpose. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody. This is Jose Palomino, a founder and CEO of Value Prop and your host on Business Growth on Purpose. And, you know, every now and then you meet somebody in your business travels that impresses upon you as somebody who kind of gets it and gets it well. So I've been working with a client. His name is Duncan Shaw of uh, DTS Language Services. And I asked him to be a guest on our show because I think some of the things I've observed as I've helped him do things in the strategy, marketing, sales world impressed upon me that this is somebody who understood how to compete in a world that was changing very quickly. And that was also dominated by uh, some big players there. So we're going to discuss just how those things tie together and how he's managed to make his firm successful and keep it successful uh, for the better part of 50 years. So let's listen carefully as Duncan joins our show right now. Well, welcome, Duncan, to Business Growth on Purpose. Thank you very much, Jose. I'm glad to be here today. Well, Duncan, you are one of our guests that come to our show as a business owner operator, right? So you're not a practitioner helping in the marketing strategy side. You actually run a business. So tell our audience a little bit about the business you've run, how long you've been there, and uh, just what you do and who you do it for. Well, I am owner and president of DTS Language Services, and DTS is in the language services market. We work with companies and organizations and people that need help with international languages or with languages being translated or communicated into English. So we're a small but 50-year-old enterprise, and we hope to be around another 50 years, and that means adopting to change and being open to change. Wow. And do you do you focus on any given market in particular or just all language services? Because of our location here in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina, we just had an influx of demand in the clinical trials and life sciences markets. So we've emphasized and focused on those markets and clinical trials and biotechnology and medical device and healthcare. Those are markets that are going to continue to need international help as well as different kinds of language needs and evolving needs. Well, now I'm assuming, you know, when you describe those categories, these are like pretty regulated markets, right? I mean, they're like, I'm, I'm assuming a certain level of precision is required. Yes, you can't wing it. Uh, approximately isn't good enough when you're talking about patient lives. So it's a very conservative market. It's a very... Uh, slow to change market. It's a very, this is the way we've always done it market, but the world is changing rapidly every day. Globalization has changed things drastically. And I think a lot of organizations decades old, older than ours certainly have been forced to acknowledge that and change. But yes, it's a highly regulated market that is subject to scrutiny at the highest levels. Wow. So you know, one thing that's always intriguing to me when I see a privately held company in a, especially an international marketplace, which is where it sounds like you guys are, are, are right in the middle of that. 
and certainly a very demanding and, and expanding market, which is life sciences, healthcare, all that stuff. Uh, so I'm assuming there's probably some big corporate players that do similar things to what you do and go after the same market. And probably for the better part of the last 50 years, that's been true. Is that is that an accurate assessment? Yeah, translation started off as a so-called cottage industry in the 50s and 60s. And back then we were told technology was going to wipe out the role of the human translator in the uh, translation agency. Around the year 2000, a lot of enterprise, larger translation corporate uh, entities sprung up with uh, VC funding or, or other types of funding and really became the uh, darlings of the media uh, attention. And so there are some 26,000 translation companies uh, out there. The top 10 largest enterprise translation language services companies still only comprise about 10% of the industry's 40 billion or so annual uh, uh, market value. So it's very, very fragmented. But yes, there's been a proliferation of competition and growth everywhere. Well, so, so one thing that whenever I hear a company has been around, you know, decades, right, in highly competitive markets and so on, there's usually some thought when I talk to the owner, the, the, the leadership of that company, uh, how they've been able to remain competitive, stay in business even, as you said, 26,000 competitors. I mean, that's a lot of competitors. Uh, so it'd be like piranha in a, in a pool when the cow falls in, right? Uh, so how, how have you managed to win and stay, in, you know, stay viable in such a, a feeding frenzy environment? Uh, I always recommend that you hide in plain sight. And what I mean by that is be very self-honest about where your strengths are. If you're a large entity organization, then that's the angle that you play upon because when you believe you'll be believed, someone will hear that conviction in your collateral, in your talks with them, in your negotiations. And that's what people and organizations are buying into. They're buying into the trust that they feel that you're carrying. So for us as a smaller uh, business, we focused on the golden rule. How would I want to be treated? in terms of responsiveness, in terms of attentiveness, in terms of actually doing what we say we'll do. How many people actually do what they say they'll do nowadays? It sounds like a simple, almost negligible right. question, but very often it doesn't happen. So you can differentiate yourself simply by doing what you'll say you'll do and build upon that. If you're a smaller organization, those are the types of values culturally that you convey and that will appeal to other small to mid-sized organizations. If you're a larger enterprise organization, then you play upon those traits because birds of a feather, those larger organization buyers are going to identify more readily with that approach. But be who you are, be true to who you are. If you try to not be who you are with puffery or suggestions or innuendo, I think that the trust barrier is pretty, the trust hurdle is pretty high nowadays, higher than ever. And that's going to fail. And that's a large reason why so many entities do fail because they're not being true to who they really are authentically. So hide in plain sight, be who you are, and that authenticity is going to bleed through. Wow. So that sounds, you know, at some level, and I can just imagine a couple of business owners that I've crossed paths with over the, you know, 18 years of doing a value prop and working with uh, B2B business owners is sometimes that stuff can sound 
like, okay, we'll put, we'll make sure we put that on the plaque in the cafeteria. Right. So how do, how do we take those thoughts about being reliable, being trustworthy, all those things and move beyond the plaque? How, how have you been able to do that? I think how we've moved beyond the plaque and that's a great way of putting it is to, I don't like to say lead by example, but it's true. You have to elicit real world examples of how you've moved the needle. You know, if your mission is to put a dent in the universe with your industry, on what levels have you done that even on a micro level that are identifiable and relatable to your employees, to your suppliers, to your partners? How have you helped the client uh, materially? That's when the rubber hits the road. And you can get that feedback just by asking people around you, how do you like working here? How do you like working with us? How has it impacted you? And really elicit real world examples. And that's what's gonna be true to form. What the the poster says and what the company slogan says is one thing, but I think what people fail to do often is to just ask their clients and the people that they serve, did we help you? What was the feedback, good or bad? Because we always think of ourselves in glowing terms, and maybe it wasn't as magnanimous as we'd like to think. Right. So again, it comes back to self-honesty and authentic uh, being authentic and really uh, soliciting real world actual change how have you changed the world or not well well that that takes um a uh, a certain amount of uh, you know what i what i like to refer to as like confident humility right so you have to believe in yourself or else you're going to show up as as very shaky to a prospect but also humble enough to know that hey we're a human enterprise we can't do everything perfectly and just maybe things that we have blind spots on that we'd rather know rather than not know that's so it right. sounds like you 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 kind of practice that that brutal honesty uh, dimension in how you run your business. I, I think it all comes down to the having self-awareness, whether you want to say speak in front of 10 million people and, and they're all naked. You know, imagine that <laughs> we're all human beings is what I'm saying. You know, everybody puts their pants one leg on at a time, whatever you, analogy you want to make. Uh, once you get past this, as I call it, posturing, this puffery. And just talk to people like a human being, not like a metric, not like a slogan. Um, that's what's, I think, been the differentiator for us, as silly as it may seem. Well, you know, that kind of makes sense because you said you, you're selling or you're working with and for people, not a metric. Yeah. Yet there's such a dominant trend now in all of business that everything's a metric right you know all the way back from uh, i just watched one late night i was traveling and i watched moneyball movie with brad pitt uh, on the oakland a's right and how that revolutionized baseball everything was a metric then things like the, this person this player has good character or whatever was irrelevant and maybe that works in baseball but you're telling me in your world what part of what sets you apart is you don't look at it as just a metric but but let me ask you kind of the other side of that. But but do metrics play a role at all in a small business competing against larger enterprises? Does it matter at all or is it just a question of degree? Metrics do matter because what measures uh, what's measured is, is what gets, uh, however that saying is, what okay. measured is what gets done. Right. Uh, so, of course, they absolutely matter, uh, of course. But I think you have to say, what gets me out of bed in the morning? What is my purpose? What excites me? 
How am I going to support my family? Do other buyers and clients, what excites and motivates them? Are they excited about their job? Mm-hmm. Why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we pulling on the same side of the rope? Um, that's how I, I look at it. But that's well and fine. You can say, I want to have fun with what I do. I'm privileged to live in a country and to be in an occupation that I can have fun with a lot of the time. A lot of people don't have that privilege. Right. But how do we measure that? What metrics, you know, do we live and die every second of the day by a, a million metrics? Maybe, but uh, having fun and having purpose and having vision and values and applying that is great, but you've got to have metrics to see where you're going. Otherwise, you could be, as they say, uh, sailing the boat in, in circles and not even realizing it. Well, you know, two, two um, anecdotes or metaphors come to mind. One is, uh, you know, two bricklayers are asked, you know, what what do you do? And he says, well, I lay brick all day. And the other one says, I'm building a cathedral to God, right? So that, that you know, doing the same activity, but a different motivation. And the other one, of course, is, you know, I don't know how true this is, but in the old Soviet Union, the glass factory, started getting measured on pounds of glass produced to uh, to make productivity happen. What ended up happening is they started producing sheets of glass that are like three inches thick that were unusable at, you know, for windows and stuff, but they met the metric. So it's having the right metric, um, you know, which is, which is key. Uh, now, one thing that, that comes, comes to mind as I look at your competitive space as all those things is I imagine your industry, like, just about every other industry is being impacted by or in the midst of a technological revolution of some sort. How does that play in your space? Uh, The reality is, uh, you know, without knowing that much about any particular industry, I know a small company is never going to have the ability to acquire or deploy as much technology as a billion dollar company. I mean, just common sense. I don't care what the industry is. So how do you manage that? Maybe technological divide between you and maybe, you know, if there is a, you know, billion dollar players in your industry. Yeah. I think that you've got to be conversant about technology. You've got to acknowledge how swiftly it's changing. And if your emphasis is being a technology forward company, then you're going to attract technology forward buyers. Something else by just way of the simple seesaw model is going to suffer as a result of that. There might be aesthetics that suffer to some degree. It might be a little bit roughshod. But if the underlying technology is what really takes the hill, then that's what you're you're doing. In language services, AI, of course, is affecting everything in so many industries and so many jobs. It, it affects translation. It affects uh, language specialists, both the spoken and written word. So we're embracing that and um, being open to that. But we have to be cautious, too, because uh, what you put out there, especially the written word, stays out there. Mm. And that can have ramifications on a clinical trial study that can have ramifications on uh, patient trust and participating in clinical trials that can have ramifications on a $100 million study being canceled, uh, all kinds of FDA violations, trust violations, employee turnover and retention uh, issues. So we have to be open to evolving and using technology Otherwise, you're going to become a dinosaur, plain and simple. But I think that uh, always being an early adopter for me hasn't been the best course of action. I think you have to approach it with one foot on the gas and a little bit on the brake, too. Okay. 
Well, and, and it seems to me that, you know, your client base being involved in things, like you said, clinical trials, right? So a new cancer drug is being tested or something like that. There's a lot at stake there. I mean, that's, that's real lives and so on. Yeah. So in that context, how do you, let's say if you were talking to a prospect organization, somebody who is looking at somebody in language services and say, we're looking at company X, which is this, you know, name brand, big box kind of player. And we're considering you in the context of technology, keeping up with what's going on in the world and so on. How do you explain that difference practically? Because that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Like many people listening to this podcast are also the smaller privately held firm competing with very large in whatever the industry is, very large giants in their field. So I'd like to get some insights on how you've been able to draw that difference with a with a client or prospect you're talking to? For me, I believe in saying what you can't do and what you're not and being open and honest about that. We go to amazon.com. Do we look at the five-star reviews? No, many of us look at the one-star reviews, the two-star reviews, because we don't trust the four and five-star reviews uh, any longer. So instead of- I do that, out, I, I reverse sort it and go right to the one-star Yeah, review. so we might say, if you're looking for an organization with 200 offices worldwide, 10,000 plus employees, we're not it. So try to, in a sense, disqualify yourself from the situation to make sure if it's not a fit, you want to know that as early as possible and to acknowledge that and to be honest about what you can't do. That I think is a, a critical measure. But once you get past that and establish some honest dialogue that you can't be all things to all people, Mm -hmm. And if somebody wants to, to know more organizationally about us, then talk about some real world, world metrics about deliverability, reliability. When there are so many stakeholders that are awaiting a translation, awaiting uh, some sort of document required uh, in 14 languages in three months, did it happen on time? Or did it require costly rescheduling with 20 stakeholders and partners in different organizations, mm. uh, either in a clinical trial or other setting. So ask about who we would be working with, talk to them. And uh, that I think is, is a key driver to actually uh, have buyers talk to the people day to day that they would be working with instead of just the sales business development people up front. That's a, a key thing that I would recommend for anybody. Let them see the flaws. None of us is perfect. That's the, the big message that I would have with anybody. Just be, as I say, hide in plain sight uh, and be self-honest. So uh, let them see the holes. They have their own holes. If we say, listen, we have a 95% on-time delivery rate, which we do. That's a metric that we maintain and that we track. Uh, is a buyer going to say, hmm, I'm wondering if I'm going to be in that 5% category where things aren't going to be on time. If that's the attitude, then we might not be a fit, in which case I'd say is everything in your organization 95% on time or higher? Uh, mm. Certainly, I imagine payroll and certain key functions are, but everything, that's a pretty good driver. But if uh, already you can't fight against, you can't empty the ocean with a teaspoon. So acknowledge those uh, points of congruency and acknowledge where there's not a fit and uh, I think the best business development and best companies, what they do is 
try to disqualify as much as possible early on. Then when you have those last remaining, last standing opportunities with buyers, you don't want to lose those. You you will move heaven. So hold on. I want to explore that just a little bit there, Duncan, because uh, again, many, many of the companies in B2B that are, you know, small and mid-sized businesses, the owner or the very top leadership is very much involved in business development as well. Like they just, they, they don't all have a team of 10 salespeople out there and so on. So you're talking about radical disqualification, right? So certainly I just want to expand on that a little bit, if you, if you, if you might, um, because that seems a little counterintuitive because we all want, we want the net full of fish, right? So you're saying, well, we don't want as full of net, you know, maybe just tell us a little bit of how that works practically. Yeah. You don't want to say that your net has a gaping hole, right? Unless that's the case, <laughs> but it's perfectly self-honest to admit that sometimes a fish or two drops out of your net. Mm-hmm. But what has the success rate been of your net, so to speak, of your capabilities? How have you helped similar organizations? I think it simply all boils down to trust at a primal gut level. And it's mm-hmm. very, very hard to undo that first impression. And that's why self-authenticity bleeds through and matters so much above all else. But yes, uh, talk about what you can't do, who you aren't, uh, and cross off the things from a checklist if you are a buyer. And and again, I think it comes a lot uh, back to Jose putting yourself in the other person's shoe, the golden rule. What would I want to know about? How would I want to be treated? Would I am I being feel, felt heard? That's a, a key driver. These are very very common sense applications, but not commonly done. No, that's that's for sure. Um, and, and the other thing too is, it would seem to me that as a smaller organization, um, a client of yours is more likely to speak to somebody who has real oversight as opposed to going through. You know, seventeen people are involved, and you're never quite sure who to call. Is that is that true? Is that an advantage you'd bring as a smaller business that you could that your customers can deal more directly with people responsible? Sure. One of the things I'll say is if you go to a big box language services company, good luck getting the cell phone of the president. (laughs) And ergo, a lot of our buyers are going to have my cell phone and I might not want to get that tech to call about a disgruntled (laughs) experience or a complaint about a service experience. They happen to us too. We're, We're open and honest about that, but you don't get to be 50 years in business without doing more right than not. Right. there has to be accessibility as a smaller enterprise. Again, that's a virtue that you're able to sell. Agility, responsiveness, accessibility. And really, I think uh, a personalized experience, that's what we're all seeking. We want to feel heard. We don't want to felt feel like we're in the uh, being put in a box with 8,000 other buyers, un- unless it's a commodity experience and we expect that and that's fine. But at a high level, in the example of language services in the clinical trials regulatory experience, most buyers are very sensitive. Some aren't, and that's fine too. If adequate is sufficient, that's fine. But a lot of translation buyers, a lot of language services buyers are extremely particular about a personalized experience and being heard and making sure that all of their requirements are being addressed. And you're going to hear about it if they aren't. And that's fair game. 
Yeah. And it sounds like for a lot of the projects you work on or uh, provide services for, uh, you know, whatever you're charging for it is probably a very small percentage of the whole project, like bringing a cancer drug to market, the translation of, you know, consent forms is probably a very, very small part of whatever is involved in that and whatever's at stake with that. Is that fairly true? It's a, it's a small hinge that swings a big door. Okay. Uh, I love that. No, that's great. Um, Yeah. Because I guess if you can't, if you don't, if you can't get the consents done, you can't get the trial done. If you can't get the trial done, you can't get approval. You can't get drug launch, right? Patient recruitment, patient retention, patient uh, participation is a a key metric. It's of key concern. Uh, Most uh, sites, most clinical sites don't have enough patient enrollment. So there is a patient who wants to participate in the trial. They speak Arabic, they speak Spanish, they speak Chinese, but, but they meet the inclusion criteria. It's not a big deal to spend eight, ten, sixteen thousand dollars, whatever the case may be, to get that patient population, have translations in place, and to mm. get them enrolled in the study um, and consented, and right. hopefully retained throughout that. Given what's at stake at the finish line, however. There are a lot of managers in mid-management and other positions at a pharmaceutical company, at a CRO or IRB, who have limited budgets. You can't say, well, this is a $50 million trial. What's the big deal with a $10,000, $12,000 translation cost? A lot of buyers are saying, well, every $600 here or there counts, given our overall budget. Right. So that framework exists, and that's fine, too. You, you can't uh, sometimes big uh, little hinges swing big doors. And sometimes there's a budget amount on how much the hinge can cost. <laughs> right, 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 right. If I'm, building a, if I'm building a million dollar house, doesn't mean I'm going to pay, you know, a hundred dollars a hinge. Uh, yeah. But maybe, I don't know, you know, it depends, but that's, that's a very good point. And yeah, you, uh, you, you want the $30,000 toilet, <laughs> you, you can have it, but that right. means that you're not going to have landscaping out front. You, right. right. So right. we have to have some, I think recognition of the context and uh, some humility a little bit that there are other costs and, and factors involved. Sure. Well, you've been doing it for or maybe not you personally the whole way, uh, but the firm has been doing this for 50 years. Yeah. So it obviously has found a way to, to navigate that, 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 that narrow road of, I guess, you know, price value and, and results. Uh, it's, it's a kind of funny thing, Jose. We live in a big data world, machine learning, AI, quantum learning. As a small entity, we've survived and thrived with a motto of every word counts and every person matters. So on a micro level, really uh, recognizing and appreciating translators and interpreters for what they do every day. No one will read over your documents. I'm speaking to any anyone out there listening, your website, your software, harder than a translator. They care deeply about it being conveyed effectively to your audience. And that's what we're looking for. Language should hold such dignity that whether text is written on the back of a cocktail napkin or we're talking about a million word project that all the world will see it should be held with the same importance and regard. So uh, we've recognized things on a micro level, which ironically, People are starving for all the tools of connectivity that we have today available to us. People are starving for human connection and connectivity and to feel heard and to feel like there's a relationship. 
Oh, fantastic, Duncan. And we're going to use that as a as an end note here. And, and so somebody listening wanted to know more about your company or you, where should they go to find out more? We would be delighted uh, to uh, have someone visit our website, www.dtstranslates.com. You can also find DTS Translates on LinkedIn. I'm very uh, active on that and happy to uh, chat and find out uh, what's new. Fantastic. Well, Duncan Shaw, DTS Language Services, thank you so much for stopping by Business Growth on Purpose. We appreciate it. It's been fun, Jose. I really appreciate having me on board today. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose. If you like the show, hit subscribe and leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. And if you're ready to take the next step in driving intentional growth for your business, Come check out what we're doing at valueprop.com. We've developed industry-leading programs and systems to help B2B owners take control of their growth. Until then, thanks for listening to another episode of Business Growth on Purpose.